anti-government protests sweep Iran. Thorburn shows AFL refuses to learn. And good news is no new extinctions in Australia. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me from the harbour city that is Sydney is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my co-host for The Week on Wednesday live at Melbourne Fringe next Wednesday, the 12th of October at Trades Hall in Melbourne, Victoria, my wife and your friend... Van Badham, how are you, Van? I am looking forward to seeing you on Friday, and I am really looking forward to us doing the week on Wednesday live on the 12th at Trades Hall, which is a Wednesday, because we'll be around fans of the show and our comrades, and that will cheer me up immensely, as I think we both know. Yeah, so it should be a great, great uh, afternoon, 5.45, I think we're kicking off. Uh tickets there's still some tickets available but we are reliably informed that we are selling very very well so if you are going to be in melbourne on the 12th and think i'd like to be part of the week on wednesday live experience get your tickets online at fringe.com.au melbournefringe.com.au you'll see links on all of our melbournefringe.com.au Yep, yep, melbournefringe.com.au. I think we've said it seven times now. Melbournefringe.com.au. Have we said that seven times? Do you want to develop an app? Yeah, that's right. You can also Google search uh, The Week on Wednesday Fringe or Van Batten Fringe and you will find it straight up as well. Of course, Van, there's been a lot going on around the world and a little bit happening here at home as well. Uh, today, I do want us to have a bit of a look at what's been going on in Iran. But before we do... I want to just give a bit of contrast here because we're going to talk about some pretty um, confronting issues today, and I think it's worth just pointing out some of the progress that's been made in Australia just in the last couple of weeks where we've had some outcomes for work that's been going on for really probably more than a decade where we've seen Australia pass paid family domestic violence leave uh, for all working people uh, and passing legislation that means employers have a proactive responsibility to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace as part of workplace health and safety laws. Two things that unions in this country have fought for uh, under the leadership of Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill uh, and many other union leaders, uh, women union leaders, stepping forward with the support of the community and really bringing forward these important reforms, winning these important reforms. So, of course, we would always encourage people, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W for week on Wednesday. You can join your union because... What we're about to talk about is really the diametric opposite of what we're achieving in Australia and the progress we're making, uh, and and in some ways demonstrates why it's so important to have women in public life and involved in leadership and actually and in, in leading and, and doing so many great things, Van. You know, well, yeah, like so there are studies um, that I will obviously find and locate and share in my spare time about uh, about the likelihood of a social movement success increases exponentially when there's a high percentage of women involved in it. So when you have women in leadership roles of social movements, it's a sign to the population that it, that it does represent a popular cause and that obviously when women are re- uh, willing to uh, risk social censure, marginalisation, all those things by protesting for any cause, whether it's for a women's rights cause or an anti-war cause or an anti-regime cause, it's it's a very powerful signal that um, they probably represent a majority opinion. Well, in Iran right now, they're in the midst of uh, a, a 
some are calling it an uprising. Some are calling other people it, are calling it a revolution. Yeah. So three weeks ago, a young woman called Maza Armani, who is from a Kurdish part of Iran, um, the Kurds are of course a different different ethnic community from the um, Farsi speaking population, and they're in. Uh, I believe they're in northwestern Iran. Do forgive me, any Kurdish people listening to this, if I've got the geography wrong. Um, I was a history student, much better on history than geography. Um, so, uh, is and this is a community that has had traditional antagonisms with uh, the Iranian regime because they want their own country, they want a Kurdistan. We know this. Anyway, so Maza Amni uh, was a woman from that part of Iran and was arrested by the morality police. You know, if ever there was a misnomer for a government agency, I think the Iranian morality police pretty much sums it up. Uh, They arrested her apparently for a hijab infringement. Because Iran is an Islamic republic, they had the revolution in 1979 that installed the Ayatollah Khomeini um, as their supreme leader and became a, you know, religious fundamentalist state uh, and a religious oligarchy essentially where ultimate decision-making power in Iran is conferred on religious clerics who serve the Ayatollah, the religious leader. Um, after that revolution, they installed extremely strict codes on uh, expression, dress, uh, what women could and couldn't do. And women in Iran are obliged to wear the hijab. There are all kinds of different social restrictions on what women can do. And Maza Amini was was wearing a scarf, but not in a way that satisfied the morality police. It was too loosely, they said, that she was wearing hijab too loosely. Yeah, she was wearing it too loosely. Wow. And, yeah, which is kind of extraordinary. They took her into custody, which they're allowed to do because they make the rules, and miraculously, three days later, she was dead. Now, the regime claimed that she died of a heart attack. The fact that photos emerged of her with severely bruised and beaten face seemed to indicate that perhaps severe head trauma was involved. And, of course, protests kicked off uh, in her part of Iran, this Kurdish part of Iran that she's from, but they spread and they hit Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, two days later. And it has gone absolutely gangbusters. And I want to put this into um, into some context. There have been protests in more than 100 cities in Iran. So we're not just seeing like an urban, uh, you know, university community. A lot of the protests are coming out of the universities, but they're also coming out of high schools. The most extraordinary footage of literally rampaging teenage girls tearing off their hijab, cutting their hair, screaming death to the dictator and stamping on pictures of the Ayatollah, which is it's a new one. Um, but there have been massive street protests and it's just everywhere. It's just kicking off everywhere. What makes this even more extraordinary is that the regime in Iran has been uh, imposing internet blackouts to stop people from organising. They're trying to head off another sort of Arab Spring type event where people came down to public squares and mobilised on the basis of viral internet information. Information is getting around anyway. They are now cracking down uh, with as much force as they can muster and they're facing obstacles to doing that. Um, The Iranian Women's Association in Australia, who have been just amazing um, maintaining contact with uh, protesters in Iran and trying to get the word out about what is happening there because it is – it is a full-on uprising. I mean, there have been uprisings in Iran before, like before, in the period after the Iranian Revolution. Um, there were big protests in 2009. There were big protests in 2019. Um, these usually have provoked government crackdowns that are quite violent. Uh, in one of the last crackdown periods, 1,500 people lost their lives. At the moment, various Western news sources are uh, reporting that more than 100 people have lost their lives. The Iranian Women's Association have been sharing information on the ground saying that it's more likely that it's 400 people who've been killed and 20,000 people who have been taken into custody, which is a lot of people to attempt to jail. 
Um, but and they're trying to move sort of the Revolutionary Guard, which is of course the you know the regime's police, into disperse the protests and uh, and um, uh, commuters like people in cars have been circling the areas where the protesters are meeting um, in their cars and preventing like um, military vehicles and tanks and various other things from getting through and honking their horns and doing everything they can to suppress, to stop the the crackdown from happening. And, I mean, it is just incredible because it has kicked off in a big way. And the idea that in a country where a woman was allegedly beaten to death um, for a hijab infringement, to see these women in the streets of Iran removing their hijab, setting them on fire, cutting their hair is is just incredible. It is a truly revolutionary act and demonstrates that, you know, people are not obeying the dictates of the morality police anymore. These amazing photos that have been firing like lead shot into or buckshot into the crowds. Well- well, on that, Van, I, I want to point out the the extreme level of violence that the Iranian authorities have resorted to because it is the UN says they've been firing live ammunition into the crowd, um, into various crowds in various parts of the, the country. Um, the, the, the protests, the revolutionaries, whatever you want to call them, um, have uh, actually burned a police station to the ground. Um, uh, after the death of a number of protesters, uh, five members of the Revolutionary Guard were killed at a police base on Friday. The Iranian authorities have fired missiles into the Kurdish provinces of Iran. Um, they have blamed the West for all all of this. They think they think it's all a Western. Uh, conspiracy, which will be interesting because I'm sure some of our listeners today are only hearing about this for the first time. Uh, certainly not a Western conspiracy, although nine foreign nationals were arrested after the uh, the death of the Revolutionary Guard members. Uh, it is an incredibly violent situation. Um, there are reports that 18 journalists have been arrested. Uh, we've seen... Um, uh, well-known Iranian footballer Hossein Mahini arrested after posting support for the protest. Uh, Mona Borzai, uh, a high-profile Iranian poet, was uh, imprisoned. Uh, and of course, you know this is a very brutal situation. But people are standing up, and and even uh, the most uh, the most shared. Uh, Farsi song of all time has been created in the midst of all of this. Oh, it's pretty amazing. So um, this incredible song that was uh, composed by um, an Iranian um, singer whose name is Shervin Hajipur and he created this just, it's one of the most, it's, it's a very, very moving song about why people are protesting because, yes, it has been sparked off by the death of this young woman. Um, yes, women have been leading the protests and setting hijab on fire and cutting their hair, um, but these are, these are not the only problems in Iran. Like the morality police are a symptom of the, of the broader problem, and the broader problem is that Iran is a desperately corrupt, fundamentalist, authoritarian society where people are miserable. And um, Shervin Hajipur made this song that's literally comprised of tweets on the um, Meza Armani hashtag on Twitter of people talking about all the reasons why they're protesting and why they're sharing the hashtag. And it's because Iran is just awful, like it's falling apart. It's awful. The regime is corrupt. There are not opportunities for people. There's a massive brain drain. Iran has actually some of the best technical universities in the world. They churn out these brilliant engineers and scientists and IT people 
very high levels of education and no economic opportunities for those people. There's reporting of, you know, people with architecture degrees who are working in shops because the economy's collapsing. And one of the reasons why the economy is collapsing is that typical of authoritarian regimes, all of this money goes on policing, all of this money goes on weapons development. Obviously, Iran's been trying to develop a nuclear capacity for years. And since it has been developing a a nuclear capacity, it's been subject to American sanctions. Now, under Obama, the Iran nuclear deal, which gets talked about a lot, it was a deal by which the United States enabled investment in Iran and some economic rescue for Iran if they didn't pursue a nuclear program. This was one of the mm. means by which the Obama administration was trying to neuter the situation in Iran. And, of course, Trump came in and just went, nah, shredded it, uh, reimposed sanctions, and the Iranians got back on with you know pursuing their nuclear development. Well done, Donald Trump, another brilliant decision from you. Um, so what's happened is that in the intervening years where Iran has been under these massive sanctions, I mean, this is the thing, and this is relevant when we talk about Putin in Russia as well, like appeasement doesn't work with these autocrats. Their fundamental interest is in power and maintaining power and maintaining the authority of their regime. And mm-hmm. to think that they actually care about their citizens is just ridiculous. Like just as Putin is taking completely untrained troops from Russian ethnic minorities and pushing them into the meat grinder of Ukraine, where even the Ukrainians are expressing distress about how many untrained soldiers their weapons are just ripping through as they try to defend their own homeland and retake occupied territories. Like making the point to Putin that Russians are dying, I mean, is irrelevant. Like he doesn't care. Mm. Just as the regime in Iran, I mean, if you care about your citizenry, you're a democracy. Like if you care about the citizenry, you give the people a stake in their own government. Like that's yeah. that's what you do. And generally, if you restrict democratic rights, I mean, you don't care. And we mm. can say this about the Republicans in the United States as well and their habits of pursuing voter suppression and trying to steal elections and, you know, blame it on satanic pedophiles and all the nonsense they go on with. You know, this is making an appeal to morality does not work. So in the years since Trump ripped up the Iran nuclear deal, the regime's just gone back on the nuclear bandwagon. Meanwhile, these enormous economic problems, because when America went, we're re-sanctioning you, all the investment went out, uh, companies that were going, that were European and from around the world that were going to Iran came out and they've got, and it, inflation is at 50%. In Iran, like there was a, a story that I was reading last night about a, a work, a, I think he was an engineer, and he was mm. talking about all the things that he has gradually cut out of his diet because he can no longer afford them because of inflation. The first to go was meat, then it was uh, the red meat, then it was chicken, uh, then it was cheese, and now it's butter. Like this is what people are living with in Iran. They have a terrible pollution problem as well because, you know, the regime doesn't care. Like the mm. regimes aren't regimes generally don't monitor air quality or go, no. oh, should we be having pursuing a tree planting program? That's really not how these things work. And so this song created by Shervin Hajipur just goes through all these reasons. There are no opportunities. Everything's awful. There's no freedom. Women are treated like rubbish. Everybody's unhappy. You know, 80% of the population live in economically marginalized circumstances. And this song got 40 million shares in like 48 hours. And what happened to Shervin Hajipur then? Well, he was imprisoned. He yeah, was imprisoned. He was forced to recant. Uh, they, they've tried to pull it off the internet. Obviously, they've failed quite miserably. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I have a former doctor who is Iranian uh, and I remember he and I talking about the situation in Iran uh, when sanctions were reimposed uh, and they couldn't get medicines, you know. So to your point about the state of the Iranian economy, here you have somebody who is a doctor, practicing doctor, making decent money, and effectively they're having to smuggle medicine into Iran uh, because the regime would seize cash and seize medicines that he was trying to get across there. So the kind of things that Shervan Hajipur and the people whose tweets he's 
used to make a song, they're living under that regime every single day. And and the diaspora of Iranians, you know, the the pain in in his voice when we spoke about it was really quite um, really quite moving. And that was before what's going on right now. So it is, you know, obviously it's built up. It's built up this repression of the people in Iran, and it and it is exploding, literally exploding. Well, I mean, this is the thing, you know, that. One of the the things they're saying it's different now to uprisings of the past because now there is a social media generation of kids who have a window into what the rest of the world is like. You know, that even if there's enormous amounts of political censorship in Iran, and there is, there's heaps, mm. and they're one of the governments that invests very heavily in disinformation campaigns and surveillance and monitoring and all those absolutely horrible things. Um, the issue is the cultural visibility of the rest of the world. And so you have these kids going, why is it so miserable here? Why am I not allowed to go out and have fun and be a normal kid? Why can't we have normal here? Like, why do we have to exist in this enforced misery? Like, it's one of the lines that keeps coming up is this rejection of what they call forced paradise, that the regime insists that this is great, like this is the best way to live, except everybody's poor and miserable and there's this flight of highly educated people who leave Iran because there are no opportunities for them. And this is an important thing to consider as well. I mean, there have been protests in something like a 100 different countries, solidarity protests with um, mm. Iran that have been led by the Iranian diaspora because that is a vast community. There was a protest in Toronto that was at least 30,000 people and it was led by this guy whose name I should find, um, which I will just give me a second, Hamed Esmalian, who was a dentist from Iran mm. um, who has been who was in Canada and his wife and child were killed when the Iranians shot down a, in a, would you believe it, um, a, a Ukrainian, uh, it, it was a Ukrainian airlines oh, yes. yeah, plane and yeah. it happened a few years ago and the, the regime had screwed up like they were participating in some kind of live fire exercise or some military kind of maneuvers and, of course, systems are so dysfunctional, this plane was delayed, nobody told the plane there was a problem and it was shot down by the Iranians and he lost his wife and child and he's become an author and a very, very popular blogger and he's like he's become like the intellectual leader of whatever the the movement is, you know, in Iran against the anti-regime movement because he lost everything and his attempts to get justice for his family. And it's in the, uh, the Shevin Hajipur song, um, somebody said, because I want the world to be like this photo again. And it was of, um, a, and it was of um, Ismailian with, it, it, with his wife and child. And it's unrecoverable. I mean, they're dead, you know, because this system is so completely dysfunctional. And of course, you have the supreme leader kept his, you kept quiet for the first two weeks of protests. And now he's come out and gone, oh, well, you know, it's all an American Zionist conspiracy. And it's like, these lines don't work anymore. Like, it, it, people know. Like reality is is not something that you can continue to manufacture in an interconnected world, you know. And this is the same with Russia as well. It's why Russian control of propaganda is absolutely crucial to their project because once people see that the rest of the world is not this awful, they tend to start asking questions about what authority should look like. And it, it is interesting that Biden has actually been very it's shocked a lot of Iranians who are sort of used to being abandoned by America a bit quite a lot of criticism of um of the Obama administration coming out in some of the commentary about taking a not necessarily bold approach with Iran where Biden is like this is completely unacceptable and the United States will be pursuing sanctions on individuals who is who are associated with the regime yes Euro the European Union has been extremely strong and has already issued a number of sanctions. Well, the US is talking about sanctioning every member of the morality police. Oh, which is fantastic, which is exactly what they should do. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge the impact of Biden in the foreign policy space. And I'm getting a bit frustrated with some of the with some of the I would politely suggest 
um, are perhaps anachronistic comments that appear from time to time on social media. I've got to say, Ben, I found it very interesting that there are people who are insisting that the Iranian uprisings are a proxy war for NATO and you delve into their timelines and they also think that Ukrainian resistance to Russian invasion is a proxy war for NATO. And then would you believe, I know this is just out there, they also seem to have really intensely transphobic content and you dig a little deeper and uh, you find out they're generally anti-vaxxers as well. And I'm like, what an interesting confluence of beliefs. I wonder where you are all getting your information from. It's pretty it's pretty shocking really. You know, it's it's sort of like a bizarre combination of Reaganist ideals and and um and just Steve Bannon talking points mashed together, isn't it? I oh, guess. it's it's awful. But I mean, I want to acknowledge that I think the foreign policy leadership shown by Biden is has been really exceptional because we are not doing the, you know, Reagan Bush style where we'll just we'll just mobilize American troops and drop them in a country and become the occupiers. That's not what the tenor of the sort of Biden doctrine has been. The Biden doctrine has been to support <laughs> the people's movements for democracy um in Ukraine, obviously regaining their territory, and now in Iran with like with reasonable democratic support, it's a, a matching of like with like. If the instinct is towards, um, you know, d- uh, like a, a democratic outcome, you resource that democratically. That is, rather than turning up and being military occupiers, it mm. is supporting the democratic movements through things like sanctions and, uh, you know, economic responses and political responses and very, very bold diplomacy and obviously in the case of Ukraine with support for weapons and logistics and training, that is that is the right way to do that. And I think that's restoring the reputation of America after like constant disappointments and disasters over the past numerous decades. But it is, I, I just find it really interesting that this sort of proxy war for NATO kind of stuff gets repeated because it's like, guys, the Cold War is over it's actually over and there is a new enemy and it's not for all the terrible things that are happening in the United States, particularly with the Republican Party, which is genuinely terrifying. The, the problem with the Republican Party that we, we should be terrified of is the same force that we should be terrified of everywhere and that is authoritarianism, you know, and authoritarianism is anti-democratic government represented by the regime in Iran and represented by Putin and represented by the fascist parties that are trying to muscle in to government in Europe and elsewhere. Um, and, and that is, that is what we as democracy enthusiasts are, are fighting because they represent the end of democracy and the end of the civil liberties that make us strong and powerful. I mean, this is another thing relating back to Ukraine. Um, for those of you who aren't necessarily following the war as closely as I am and my Twitter feed, you, you can imagine is a rich source of shared information about what's happening in Ukraine. Like it, one of the really interesting things is that everything that's good about democracy, participation, you know, e- equality, uh, a recognition of inclusion, diversity, all the things that fascist adjacent conservatives say is bad, like the like the right in America who are like, our army's becoming feminized, like that's a bad thing. Well, the Ukrainian army is 20% women. The Ukrainian army has unicorn troops, which are LBG, LGBTQI um, soldiers who wear a multicolored unicorn patch on their uh, uniforms and have gone into battle, you, you know, to defend their homeland. Everything that's good about that participation and diversity means that you get better troops and better, more empowered decision making and the capacity of troops to be more responsive. And you get these movements that, and in Ukraine, there, you know, the joke used to be, the joke goes that uh, Russia was thought to have the second best army in the world and it barely has the second best army in Ukraine. And those democratic values of, of, of inclusion and representation and accommodation actually means a more, you know, mobile and agile capacity for, you know, in a military situation mm. and well, and in an economic situation. Like we just keep seeing it again and again 
that opportunity creates opportunity and these authoritarian regimes uh, are no match for it. Well, talking about democratic values of inclusion and participation, I want to change track a little bit and bring things a bit closer to home uh, because people might be aware uh, of the Andrew Thorburn saga. And this is a really interesting case study around uh, inclusion, democratic values, transparency, um, democracy, capitalism. It's actually quite a, a, a layered story, despite what some people want it to be about. It kept, kept at a very surface level. So, Okay, Ben, give us the rundown. Who is this gentleman? So Andrew Thorburn was appointed as the new CEO of the Essendon AFL Football Club and resigned after 30 hours. Now, you might think that's very strange. The statements by the club and Thorburn indicated that his role as chair of City on a Hill Church, which is one of these prosperity doctrine, uh, anti-LGBTIQA+, uh, anti-abortion, pro-bigot churches, uh, was incompatible with his role at the Essendon Football Club. And just a reminder that prosperity doctrine theology is this idea that God wants you to be rich and if you join one of these uh, churches that God will bestow financial blessings on you. And it sounds like a Ponzi scheme. You can make your own decisions about whether it's a Ponzi scheme based on the evidence. But if you go to Hillsong, which is a prosperity doctrine theology uh, congregation, they do give you a business directory when you attend. Yeah. So Thorburn is the chair, the chairman. That's what they call it, the chairman. Chairman. A chairman. He's a man made entirely of chairs. Now, Dan Andrews has called the views of City on a Hill appalling. Matthew Guy, who is the opposition leader, the Liberal leader, has claimed uh, that Andrew Thorburn's resignation is ridiculous. There's now a sort of culture war going on about has this man been sanked because of his religious views, uh, so on. It should be noted he resigned, right? Essendon Football Club said, you're an employee of ours. Your chairmanship of this organisation is not compatible with the values of being the CEO of our football club. We'd like you to make a choice. The choice that he made was to stay as chairman of the church. Now, you might think being CEO of a football club is a well-paid gig, being chairman of a church ostensibly as a volunteer position. So how is it that someone is able to make that decision? Well, Andrew Thorburn is by no means poor. He's no no church mouse himself. I love when Ben makes uh, reference. Ben, so you know, uh, it has comes from a Baptist family where where terms like church mouse are used, and I just find it adorable. I find your Protestantism strange but adorable. Well, Thorburn's Protestantism uh, didn't stop him from becoming the disgraced former CEO of the National Australia Bank, or NAB. Now, Thorburn, while he was CEO of NAB, of course, was there during the period of the Banking Royal Commission. And quite frankly, his performance is really something else. There's a photo on social media, and Van, I think you've shared this photo of him with Mike Baird and And, and, and who else is he with? Scott Morrison. He's with Scott Morrison. So the three of them are at a sum function. It looks like it's in, it looks like it's in Parliament House, honestly. Um, because of course, Thorburn appointed Mike Baird to an executive position at NAB, uh, a position that paid $2.6 million in its first year. Thorburn's last two years at NAB, he was paid $10.7 million. That's after he took a pay cut because of the Banking Royal Commission that was going on at the time. Now, why did he leave uh, NAB? Because Justice Hayne, who ran the Banking Royal Commission, said at the end of the commission, and I quote, I'm not as confident as I would wish to be that the lessons of the past have been learned. More particularly, I was not persuaded that NAB is willing to accept the necessary responsibility for deciding for itself what is the right thing to do and then having its staff act accordingly. I thought it telling that Mr. Thorburn, 
treated all issues of fees for no service as nothing more than carelessness combined with system deficiencies when the total amount to be repaid by NAB and Nullis, which is a subsidiary of NAB, on this account is likely to be more than $100 million. I thought it telling that in the very week that NAB's CEO and chair were to give evidence before the commission, one of its staff should be emailing bankers urging them to sell at least five mortgages each before Christmas. Overall, my fear that there may be a wide gap between the public face NAB seeks to show and what it does in practice remains. And of course, Justice Hain had very good reason to think that because Thorburn absolutely had a public face and a private set of motivations. In 2016, he fired 43 financial planners and paid $15 million in compensation. He was asked at a Queensland business lunch whether he thought that resolved the bank's cultural problems. And he said at the time, and I quote, I think this is an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult question because there, for the grace of God, go I. Literally in his own mind. Oh, look, can we just have a chat about some of his other amazing statements? So Antonissa from The Guardian, um, I, I, I would like to credit Anton from for really raising the Thorburn stuff yesterday as well um, with a tweet. Andrew Thorburn, the new CEO of Essendon Football Club, says re his controversial church's homophobic and anti-abortion views. Not everyone in the church agrees with those views, but it's very important in a society that those views can be expressed. And Anton wrote, really? And then why is it very important that homophobic and misogynistic views be expressed? And it's like, well, yeah, why is it? Because I don't think it's important. Do you think it's important, Ben? No, I don't. And Francis Leach, who, of course, does on the job for the Australian Union's podcast, uh, was raising these issues the moment it looked like Thorburn was going to get the job. And, you know, the the other thing about Thorburn getting this job, we should be really clear here, right? Essendon and the AFL clearly are not learning the lessons that are publicly available because Thorburn was appointed by Essendon to conduct uh, a review of the football club, including uh, appointing a new CEO. And he even interviewed some people to do that job and eventually settled on himself as the preferred candidate. This is a man who has form, right? He blamed lower-level staff for charging $650 million worth of fees to dead people when he was a bank CEO. He took a holiday a luxury holiday organized by his chief of staff, provided by a a provider that was paying kickbacks to the chief of staff uh, that was worth around $24,000. Police investigated that as part of an investigation into his chief of staff's defrauding of the bank. Uh, $5 million was defrauded by his chief of staff. He claimed to know nothing about it. There's never been any suggestion that he did. But at the time when the judge sentenced his former chief of staff, the judge said it's absolutely staggering that those frauds were not detected by some appropriate system of internal auditing. This is a man who thinks it's important that bigotry be given a place in the public square, but doesn't seem to think that it's important to have rigorous processes to protect the funds of customers, to protect the savings of customers, to protect the value of shareholders even. How Essendon ever thought this man was appropriate to lead them during what has, you know, the Essendon Football Club's had a lot of trouble in the last 10 or 15 years to think, and then they said, you know, this was, they thought this was a coup, that no football club had ever gotten an ASX top 10 CEO. I think the, the operative word here is disgraced former ASX top 10 CEO. You do it to yourself, you do. And that's what really hurts because you do it to yourself. Sorry to get all radiohead, but, I mean, come on. And but the worst part is, Ben, you and I were talking about this yesterday and I was just like imagining the conversation and I'd love to be proved wrong. Obviously, I don't move in those 
circles, but you can imagine it's like, oh, yeah, you know who we could get? We could get, oh, oh Andrew, oh, yeah, he's great. I mean, you know, he's just a really good guy. Well, you know, he's one of us. Like that kind of like just bros club, like it's so boring and it's the reason why we can't have nice things because yeah. they just there's this really infamous story from when the Australian theatre community was going through a period of reckoning. This is about 12 years ago and when everybody suddenly crunched the numbers and went, hang on, we don't program any work by women? Why is that? Why are key artists on projects always men? And there were all of these sort of fora that were held to try and determine why this was happening. Like where was the problem that women just weren't women, 50% of the population and certainly 50% of theatre makers were not being represented in 50% of projects. And somebody just said, look, I'm a white, privately educated middle-class man and I'm just more comfortable working with white, privately educated middle-class men. And, like, it was just a refreshing moment of honesty, frankly. It was like, well, yeah, and you know what? That's got to end. That's not okay. But is it, no way is that an acceptable thing to say or believe. Like, the belief is the problem. Thank you for saying it, but you believing it is is the problem. This is, and, and you just see this again and again and again and again with these corrupt mediocrities promoting other corrupt mediocrities. And this is this is the point, right? At, right now, as you and I speak, as we record this podcast, there is a huge amount of online chatter about this situation being a question of this man's religious beliefs versus society's acceptance of the diversity of our community, right? And that's actually not what this is about. It's not about that. This is about a man who believes he has a right above and beyond the rights of other people. This is about a group of men who believe that this man is more special than others. And it's very, very disturbing. It's anti-democratic, right? Years and years of evidence was piled in front of this man saying, there are problems with your bank. There are problems with your culture. And you know what he did? He fired 43 financial planners. He placed the blame on the lowest possible levels of his organization. You know, every person who works at the NAB should be a member of the finance sector union, by the way. The FSU, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Join your union right now because the culture that people like Thorburn and the people around him, that upper middle class, privately educated, white man, conservative values when it suits them, have is to lay the blame on everyone else. Yeah, always, consistently. And it's it's bad. And, you know, this relates to my previous point about authoritarianism. Like when you actually reflect democratic values of inclusion and diversity, you get a better outcome. Like the numbers are in on this concentrating power in an unrepresentative minority is bad. Like it promotes mediocrity and that doesn't lead to good institutional, organisational, social or cultural outcomes. It doesn't. It eventually, in extreme cases, leads to sovereign basket fires like Russia and Iran. And, you know, like just the idea, I find it dis- like genuinely disgusting, genuinely disgusting that it becomes just another grievance and victimhood narrative. That yeah. if you dare question that like a former NAB executive like on- CEO. CEO. CEO, a NAB CEO who is who grants himself the position at Essendon Football Club, like yeah. who, oh my God, good Lord. It's quite, it's quite, look, you know, and, and I get- But he's not a victim. He's not being no, persecuted on the basis of his religion. No. You know, he has resigned. No one fired him. He resigned because he was criticised, because he was criticised for endorsing an institution that represents dangerous bigotry. And, you know, that's he has the right to practice his religion. He has, he has the right to hang out with, like, 
very unpleasant people if he wants to. You know, he can worship an unpleasant God. In a democratic society, we let you do that. But you don't get to pretend you're a victim because somebody mentions that your beliefs are unpleasant. And I think that's really the telling thing here, right? And and I get people yeah. saying, oh, well, people should have a right to to their religion. Nobody's no stopping point, him. Nobody's stopping him. And at no point did Essendon say, you've got to give up the church. What they said is, as your employer, it is incompatible with your duties to us as our employee. To represent an institution. Whose we, values do not align to ours. And let's, and, let's and, and we'd like you. And, like, on, and, and sorry, and and we'd like you to decide which you would like to do. The decision was left with him, and the decision that he made, with Andrew Thorburn, the man who took ten point seven million dollars in his last two years at the NAB, the decision that he made, the man who refused to acknowledge there was a cultural problem for for many many years, five years plus at the NAB, the man who put himself forward to be CEO after conducting the review of the Essendon Football Club, the decision that he made was to remain as chairman of City on a Hill Church rather than be CEO of the Essendon Football Club. That's his decision. He's made that choice. Now he wants to go into the public square and say, there's no room for me in the public square. And yet every Murdoch outlet is running it that looks a bit like that looks like they've made room for him in the public square. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And no, this that is looks what- like the public square. I love it. I love it when conservatives complain about being silenced. I'm like the fact that I know that you feel like you've been silenced tends to indicate you haven't been silenced, buddy. And, and it's just, but it's this victimhood. Like it's just so weak. It is so weak. And I'm sick and tired of hearing, you know, this this absolutely insane, you know, right-wing masculinity doctrine about, you know, like, oh, you know, what it means to be a man. And it's just like but the way you represent this masculinity, you fetishise and coddle is to be really weak and complainy about it. Like, my God, oh, yes, well, you know, I'm being victimised on the basis of my religion. It's like, dude, you might want to try being me on the internet for five minutes. I got accused of being a warmonger yesterday. Apparently I'm personally waging a NATO proxy war. Well, this is, I just, it just blows my mind. These millionaire, middle-aged, upper-middle-class white men who you know, and and I'm and I'm going to put your friend Steve Price in this as well because oh, my he's friend, been my buddy doing, Steve, comrade yeah, he, Steve, he's been out doing it again recently as well. Tavarish Price, who who you know have their own television shows, football clubs, banks, radio stations, you know, who will get an op-ed up in the AFR and the and the Australian and the Herald Sun just by picking up the phone. You know, to talk about and complain about and to whinge about and to whine about how they're being silenced with their millions of dollars and their Turak mansions and their North Shore penthouses. Like, you know, I'm sorry, boys. I'm sorry that for you that it's no longer 1986 and you can't just do whatever you like without any repercussions whatsoever. But you've got your millions of dollars, you've got your public soapbox. You know, you've made your choices. Thorburn chose to be chairman of the church. Good on you, Andrew. Go and be chairman of the church. Best of luck to you. I hope you manage to pick up the New Testament at some point and actually read about Jesus Christ and his love for all of God's children. (laughs) But until you do, we don't really give a stuff, mate. I love this. I absolutely love this. I mean, you and I, we do, we we bring a moral piety into the way that we go about our lives, you know. And I just these guys on their millions of dollars and you know flying the flag of their supposedly defensible bigotry. And the, the there was a headline today in one of the News Corp papers, my faith is not tolerated or permitted, Essendon boss Andrew Thorburn quits. And it's like, 
do you know the God of your religion was nailed to a pole, like bled to death on the cross, like yeah. <laughs> and died to redeem all of humanity? I don't think people being a bit critical on Twitter is is comparable, actually, Andrew. Maybe you should read the book. Read it. I genuinely recommend that everybody give the Bible a read just to get just, I mean, you know, purely for the intellectual value more than anything else of understanding the level of hypocrisy that these people engage in. 10.7. Just staggering. $10.7 million in his final two years as the CEO of NAB. Mm. Now, he would have been paid, one would imagine, high six figures, possibly a seven-figure salary as the CEO of Essendon, you know, he, and he said, no, I, don't, I, I would rather be chairman of the church. Well, that's fine, Andrew. You can be chairman of the church. No one's stopping you. That's the thing. All these people who say, oh, I'm not tolerated. There's no, I'm not allowed to. It's like, no, you are allowed to. Nobody's shutting down City on a Hill Church. No one's arresting Andrew Thorburn. Uh, I'd just like to point out that the rabbi of Moscow has had to flee. Yeah, like that's maybe right. maybe you want to have a chat with him about you know what fear of religious persecution really looks like, Andrew. Or maybe he could talk to any of the Iranian diaspora whose family members are currently being shot at by their own government for daring to suggest that they should have the choice of whether or not to wear a headscarf and how they might choose to wear it in accordance with their own religious beliefs. Because that's what religious persecution looks like, Andrew. It doesn't look like turning your nose up at a seven-figure wage so you can continue to be chairman of a church that encourages bigotry and compares abortions to the Holocaust. The man is out of touch with reality, and the people who platform him, who say that he is silenced and at the same time give him a megaphone and put him on a stage, are not only out of touch with reality, they are deliberately trying to create culture wars in this country to fuel anti-democratic sentiment. And it is appalling, it is divisive, and frankly, I have no time for the victimhood of millionaires and media moguls. Oh, it's just, it's the worst. Let's talk about some good news. Oh, we have to. Wow, you and I are really angry, aren't we? Look, there's a lot. Yeah, we got a lot going on. We got a lot going on. We got a lot. We got a lot going on. We got a lot going on, and we might have some. Oh, look, I'll be quite honest. Residual historical issues. As somebody who was present for the, I'm just more comfortable working with white, privately schooled middle class men. Like, I think, I think it opens a wound for me. Yeah. So, and it's like, the, you know, the rest of the world does not actually exist to comfort, like, to make you comfortable. Like, the, literally, the moment these people are displaced from a sense of comfort, it's like, it's just unbelievable. Like, it's yeah. unnatural. They've been silenced. They've been cancelled. They are such victims. I know. Well, let's talk about some good news. Let's <sighs> yes. move on. Yes. Let's move on. Good to news. Give me good news, Ben. So, Tanya Plibersek, the uh, Environment Minister, the Commonwealth Environment Minister, has launched the Threatened Species Action Plan. And the good news is we are aiming for no new extinctions in Australia. This comes on the back of, as you and I have talked about many times, a very uh, environmentally damaging decade where there has been um, numerous extinctions in Australia, but there will now be an objective to prevent new extinctions uh, there's an additional 10 threatened species that are at imminent risk of extinction that are going to be added to the priority list, priority species list. 14 new priority places added to the uh, existing six places. The, the, the original six were islands, uh, which seems like a bit of a cop-out in my mind. I imagine the Morrison government said, oh, well, we'll just pick six islands. They'll be easy to look after. Well, there's now 20 priority areas. Um, and it's a commitment to protect, and we've talked about this before on the show, um, Labor made this commitment, now they're going to legislate it, to protect and conserve more than 30% of Australia's land mass. And importantly, Van, I think, you know, bringing communities into this process. You know, First Nations people have been managing this land for tens of thousands of years uh, in, and and involving them and relying on them and deferring to them 
uh, is an appropriate way of building our conservation resources. Yeah, uh, and it I think it really a, is, and it's news. it's the it's the way to go. I mean, one of White Australia's many cultural arrogances is this idea that that science is you know like a, a colonial privilege. Well, science, conservation, knowledge, land management, water management, all of these things predate. Um, the invasion and colonization of Australia by tens of thousands of years. You know, I always make this acknowledgement um, when I do like public events that Australia, I think, quite honestly, is the most beautiful country on earth. And I think it's beautiful because of tens and thousands of years of First Nations custodianship and, and that management of, of land and water. Like, it, what an extraordinary place where we live. Mm. And incorporating that into, like, it's logical. It's logical to use the most comprehensive knowledge system uh, to manage resources. And look, you know, I understand it, it's interesting because I've seen statements about this on social media, and that the government has committed to um, to anti extinction policies, which is a you know an unambiguous good. And people are going, ah, well, it's not enough. And what about blah 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 blah. And it's like, do you know what's amazing? A start. A start is just is the best thing. In fact, the best guarantee of future success is starting to actually do things. Indeed. Very uh, well, I just totally agree. I think people <laughs> people want everything done straight away and and you know, that would be nice, but that's just not always possible. But this is unequivocally good news. Uh, they're going to continue to tackle the impacts of feral cats, foxes, gamber grass, you know, dealing with the fundamentals that are driving uh, extinction events. Of course, there needs to be a look at for deforestation, uh, land clearing. Uh, you know, we need to have uh, sustainable forest management. These are all things that, you know, will come up and will be debated and will be discussed. Uh, but the, the, Having a commitment to prevent extinctions is a very good starting point. Especially yeah. after nine years of a coalition government who did not care. That's right. You know, uh, like feed the numbats into the mincer machine. I think there was uh, record levels of extinction events. Absolutely appalling. And, you know, you build a society, and this is the difference between having government and not having it, right? And I mean this as much as, staying in opposition or being in a minor party. Government means imprimatur. It means setting up institutional and structural conditions to perpetuate values throughout culture and society. And that's really important. It's one thing for me, you know, shaddy rando from Western Victoria to be like, we should save all the numbats. And I'm very pro-numbat, can I just say? Like I'm, I'm yeah. super pro. Like, but it is completely another for government to go, we will legislate to protect those species. We will create resourcing and law and, you know, institutional responses. These things, when human beings interact with them, will, will mean a value system is perpetuated through human activity hmm. that keeps those things alive. It's not uh, just a question of an opinion about what should be. It's about actually resourcing a framework for what is. Yeah, that's unequivocal good news. Now, Van, we that is all of our time for this show this week. Don't forget, of course, we will now give a shout out to our cadre supporters who chip in 20 bucks a month to help us get the message out to even more people and our Extend the Reach supporters who chip in $10 a month to help us get the message out. Of course, we also en masse uh, congratulate our Buck a Week supporters and our one-off supporters who've chipped in to help us reach new audiences and keep our podcast going. We've had to buy new microphones. We've had to invest in the technology. And hopefully the sound quality has improved over the course of the last two years, which is how long we've now been doing this podcast for. Uh, if you're only joining us for the first time, Welcome. You've got a long back catalogue to catch up on. I hope you've got a few hours over the weekend. Uh, Van, have you got the list of cadre? I do, I do, I do. Okay. So our cadre members, this list gets longer every week and I've just got to speak more more quickly. Right, are you ready? Ready? Are you ready? Cadre, 
Karina Barley at Jancy Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona, Evergreen Bees, Giota at Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pasco, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrett, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cutright, Atlee Ann Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, hello Banjo, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, at Red, White and Blue Lou. And in our Extend the Reach supporters are... Stuart Munn, Marky Mark at Vic Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carradale 68, Frank Nihus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHard at Angela Fennell, Alan, sorry, Anne Uran at Roskenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jodie A, not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna at Knot, Love Your Work at Didums, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Lola's the dog, I love it, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Vic Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You're all awesome. Absolutely awesome people. Absolutely. Uh, so don't forget to, if you are going to be in Melbourne next Wednesday, October the 12th, 5.45 at the Common Rooms at Victorian Trades Hall Council, we will be doing the week on Wednesday live. We will have audience interaction via technology. So come along, get your, well, get your tickets first and then come along. Go to melbournefringe.com. You can look up the week on Wednesday or Van Batam and you will be able to find a ticket uh, and of course join me and Van for a very special weekend wrap this Sunday which we will be doing from Sydney when we'll both be in the glorious harbour side city uh, until then love you Vanny I love you too you're the best you're the best bye bye